0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. We introduced it last week. One week ago we got our start on Hebrews, a book I've been waiting 25 years to teach. I told Ralph back in my seminary training that Hebrews was my favorite out of all 66 books. And that was true during my seminary days. It remains true to this day. And yet to this day I've never taught the book of Hebrews, not verse by verse or chapter by chapter, other than the Through the Bible series where we did every chapter of the Bible. Um, But a detailed study in the book of Hebrews uh, has uh, eluded me Really for a lot of reasons, prayer reasons, uh, confidence reasons, it, I'm not worthy. This is a deep book. And the understanding of Hebrews to teach it the way that it deserves to be taught uh, is, is is an ambitious task. And so uh, I would appreciate your prayers and uh, join me in my prayers as we ask the Father to open this book to us because it's a powerful book. It's going to teach us everything about our priesthood. It's going to show us about our spiritual work of service before the Lord. We're going to realize it's going to become so real to us that we are in the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies, in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, we've got 13 chapters to just take the invisible and make it visible and uh, to show us what this walk of faith really is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the uh, substance of the things not seen. And so Hebrews is going to equip us to, to walk in this reality. So we got, uh, how far did we get last week? Um, <laughs> Not far. We spent the whole hour talking about authorship, and I want to get past that here today and uh, and move on. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, as uh, we understand God is spirit; He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Please join me before the throne of grace in our prayer. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Thank you for your abundant grace provisions this morning that blessed us with the Gideon's visit and report. And Father, we are delighted to partner with them and to pray on their behalf and support them and to support uh, your workers, your faithful workers in in the Word of God. And I pray, Father, uh, now this hour that you would bless our time together, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. And Father, minister to us the the great depth of truth that's in, in this book. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I'll read the first four verses, which serve as a prologue to the chapter, really a prologue to the entire book, and sets the table for what follows. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages I changed the word worlds there to better reflect the Greek Ion Ionas, Through whom also he made the ages, and he is the radiance, that is, God the Son is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angel's as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so we have the first four verses that jump out at us, verses that are deep, that explain that dynamic between the Father and the Son. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the role of Jesus Christ in fulfilling the Father's design, a role that no angel could do. And in many respects, Hebrews, I think, completes for us the big picture of Scripture in what God is doing through the lesser, the, uh, the lesser creation, through humanity that answers the rebellion of angelity that answers Satan's fall and answers the justice of God in this fallen cosmos as we know it. And really the first two chapters are the most intimidating of all the chapters of the book of Hebrews that address the superiority of Christ over and against the angels. And we'll get into Moses in chapter 3 and we'll get into the law and we'll start to contrast the priesthood of the Old Testament priesthood in contrast with ours who we are in Christ, and how our priesthood is uh, the Melchizedek priesthood that's modeled from Genesis, then we'll, we'll get into all of that. But before we can get to any of that, though, we've got two chapters of angelology that we have to get into. And so we're going to spend some time with that. I don't know what it'll take or how long it'll take, but we're going to be solid on those first two chapters before we can proceed in the chapters three and following. And that uh, will hopefully be clear as we work our way through. Because having become as much better than angels jumps out at you there in in verse 4 from left field. You know, we were tracking real well in verse 1, in verse 2, and in verse 3, and then all of a sudden in verse 4, the author of Hebrews brings angels into it and then spends the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 detailing Christ and His superiority over the angels. And so I want to spend some time detailing that for you here starting today we 'll see how far we 're going to get with it all right, so last week, I began with this introduction, and we were discussing the aspect of authorship i 've said many times i 've said probably dozens or hundreds of times going back uh, that i 've always felt Barnabas was the most likely candidate for the authorship of uh, of hebrews and then last week, I had to stand and publicly repent and stand before God and angels and men and everybody. I am no longer convicted that Barnabas is the author of Hebrews and I'm starting to uh, grow more and more fond of a better uh, understanding. First of all though, uh, whoever it is didn't tell us in verse 1 or didn't tell us anywhere. It is simply stated anonymous. And many of the books are. By the way the Gospel of Matthew doesn't start off with Matthew, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you know. Uh, Matthew is technically anonymous, as is Mark, as is Luke, as is John. Uh, Paul is really our best author anywhere in the Bible because when he writes a book, he starts with his name. Every book Paul writes, the first word of the book is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and goes on to address the people that he's writing to. Uh, Here, though, uh, in a great argument against Pauline authorship, is uh, no name mentioned whatsoever at the beginning of Hebrews. Technically speaking, it is an unstated author with an unclear place of writing. I believe it was Rome, but that's unclear in the text itself. Unidentified recipients. I believe they were priests outside of Rome. I believe they were in Antioch or a similar location where we have a dominant Gentile church with a significant priestly um, uh, inclusion at an uncertain date. Unstated author, unclear place of writing, unidentified recipients, and an uncertain date. <laughs> and all of those are debated. And we can spend hours going through the literature and debating the authorship. And then we'll spend more hours going through literature and debating the place of writing. What does it mean when he says, those from Italy greet you? at the end of the book. The natural sense is that he's in Italy and the fellow Italians that are there with him are adding their greeting to his and sending that greeting from the place of writing to the recipient's location. But even that is not clear. It's just inferred. Likewise, the recipients are not identified. Nowhere in here does it say, I mean this is a powerful introduction. It's very sweeping in a scope. It's very, by the way, it's very, uh, the oratory is, is powerful. This is a sermon that is meant to be read aloud. And so reading it aloud uh, shows you the, the pacing and the cadence and the, and the poetry of this text it is unparalleled anywhere else in the New Testament. It is the finest classical Greek anywhere in the New Testament. Far superior to, to anything Paul ever wrote. And certainly, I mean, it's night and day over Peter. Peter was a moron. Or uh, John in his Greek... Okay, The only one approaching this level of literature is Luke. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are the only portions in the New Testament that can approach this level of Greek composition. And that, uh, again, is a factor in the uh, theory that Luke himself is the author of, uh, of the book of Hebrews. Internal evidence does show broad Pauline theology, but stellar classical Greek composition. And so anyone that defends the Pauline authorship simply does so because it's so compatible with Pauline theology. I mean, it is in great agreement with Romans and great agreement with Galatians and great agreement with anything Paul ever wrote. The problem is the language is different. The writing style is different. The vocabulary is different. The only place in Paul's writing, Paul has 13 legitimate books, the only place in Paul's writings that have similar overlap of vocabulary and and expressions is is the pastoral epistles, First and 2 Timothy and, and Titus. And it's long been recognized that those last three epistles of Paul's life had a different writing style, uh, somewhat improved over his earlier writing, but still very Pauline. And that's uh, typically understood because Luke was his scribe. Luke was Paul's amanuensis when Paul was writing the pastoral epistles. And so if Luke was the scribe for Paul's final three books, and we start to find affinity with those books and Hebrews. Again, we have more evidence—not for Paul, but we have more evidence for Luke himself, because the writing style is very polished and very classical and very educated, very, uh, very Lukeish rather than Paulish, in that sense. Quoting from William L. Lane in uh, his commentary, this is the Word Biblical Commentary. Um, He says, the language of Hebrews constitutes the finest Greek in the New Testament, far superior to the Pauline standard, both in vocabulary and sentence building. And that's, uh, it's really unavoidable. And it's it's actually becomes hilarious when you you read everything else Paul writes, because Paul was a Pharisee. He was a trained lawyer, a trained Jewish lawyer, as a Pharisee. And much of what he wrote, he was writing to Gentiles. And much of what he wrote writing to Gentiles reflected his Hebrew background. And there's a lot of Hebraisms, a lot of Hebrew usage that creeps into his Greek, see, that doesn't creep into Hebrews, which is extraordinary because it would be, how bizarre would that be? For Here Paul finally gets a chance to write to his own native Hebrews and he leaves out all of the Hebrewisms that he sent to all those Gentiles in those 13 other epistles, okay? It's unthinkable. It's even ludicrous to, to laugh about such a thing. So, uh, as, as it is. The best clues as to authorship, and I'm going to zip through this because we tackled it last week. But in chapter 2 and in the end of the book, we have some clues. I think it's clear in chapter 2, there are some that argue, but clearly, it says in, in verses 3 and 4 of, of Hebrews 2, it says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. The author of Hebrews did not hear this from the Lord. The author of Hebrews did not receive this information from the Lord himself. He was not one of the first apostles. He was not even an apostle. The apostles, to be an apostle, had to receive their message from the Lord. Paul made very clear in Galatians 2. He said, my message didn't come from people, it came from the Lord. He says, I didn't get my gospel from those who were apostles before me. I got it straight from the Lord. He made that big point in Galatians. The author of Hebrews makes the opposite point and said, I wasn't with that crowd and neither were you. Okay, in writing to his audience. The author of Hebrews was not an original apostle and he heard it from apostles and he is now passing it on to his readers who likewise did not receive this message directly from the Lord. So that's a big clue. And he says, God also testifying with them, those apostles who first heard it from the Lord, both by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And that's what Paul talks about when he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And he said, this is what happens with apostolic ministry. You get prophecy and tongues and healings and miracles and all these signs of an apostle so that when the apostles were ministering, they had their credentials right there. And the author of Hebrews says, I'm not one of those guys. But we learned it from those guys. And now he's writing this word of exhortation. At the end of the book, we have more clues. He uh, compliments them for bearing up with this brief word of exhortation. It's 13 chapters long, and it's longer than almost anything Paul wrote. Uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians are slightly longer, but the other 11 books of Paul are all much shorter, generally half the length of Hebrews. And yet the author of Hebrews calls it a brief exhortation. And uh, that again, I think, makes it more likely to be Luke in his authorship because Luke and Acts were much more longer in their written form. He says, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. And so more clues that the author was a part of Paul's traveling circle, was an associate of Timothy's, was uh, very familiar with Paul's doctrine, was familiar with Paul's method, was familiar with Paul's co-workers, was likely one of Paul's co-workers, again, This makes Luke uh, or Barnabas or Apollos or some of those guys have all been uh, thought of as potential authors. Anybody in the Pauline circle other than Timothy could have written, notice that our brother Timothy has been released. But the idea that Timothy was imprisoned we don't see that in Paul's lifetime. We don't see that anywhere that Luke writes about or Paul writes about. We never see Timothy imprisoned anywhere in the book of Acts or any of Paul's books. But in Paul's last book, he says, come to me quickly before it's too late. And so it's natural to accept that Timothy does arrive before Paul dies, but finds that he himself gets arrested in the, in the uh, similar circumstances. Paul gets beheaded, Timothy gets released, and uh, the author of Hebrews is sending this epistle to the Hebrews. He says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. More clues that the recipients are not an entire church that the recipients are a group within the church. And so what cliques do you have in the church? What groups do you have in the church? What, is, this a, is this a committee? Is this a, what is this group that has leaders, but yet does not constitute all the saints, does not constitute the entire church? And that leads us to believe with everything else in the picture that, we're, that he's writing to former priests, that he's writing to Jewish believers in a largely Gentile church. Jewish uh, leader, uh, believers... Former priests, before they became New Testament believers, and now they're operating in a Gentile church. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Because they're not the leaders. They used to be leaders. In the Old Testament, they were the leaders. In the Old Testament, they were Bible teachers. And now, they're not. Even though the author says they should be. By now, you should be teachers. All right? And so we're going to deal with some of those issues. A lot of comment gets made about those from Italy. Greet you. I think it's because the source was Italy and fellow Italians were sending greetings to these priests and so forth. The number one candidate is the Apostle Paul that's been the testimony since early church times. Uh, Mainly in the East, never in the West. Clement of Alexandria. Even though he defended Paul's authorship, he said that Paul wrote it originally in Hebrew and uh, Luke translated it into Greek. And so even the very first legend of Paul's authorship throws in there some added detail that says, well, he had help because that's not Paul's writing. Barnabas is the number two candidate. This was the view in the West. Tertullian referenced it, so did Gregory of Elvira and uh, Philaster of Brescia. Other uh, other Western traditions assigned it to Barnabas. And he was a Levite, and there's no question he was associated with Paul. He was an apostle. The Bible tells us three times over that Barnabas was an apostle, And I think there's a significant uh, reason, and given that he was an apostle, then I think he's disqualified for the reasons of Hebrews 2.4, as I said earlier. Not commonly suggested, but very likely candidate is Luke. And it's overwhelming, the linguistic similarities with Luke and Acts. And the reason why no one ever studied this is because everyone has always assumed that Luke was a Gentile. And if Luke is a Gentile based on tr- church tradition, if he uh, was a Gentile from Antioch who went to medical school and became a traveling companion of paul that 's all well and good, but as a Gentile, they say there 's no way he could have written he could have written uh, Hebrews Hebrews had to have been written by a Jew, had to have been written by a Levitical Jew all right, and so it, it kind of became a, a, a received wisdom for centuries that Luke was a Gentile and couldn 't possibly have written couldn't possibly have written Hebrews. Until recently, I think in the 20th century, they started to explore that more and more, and now it's almost without question that uh, going back to Luke and Acts, how could a Gentile write Luke and Acts? (laughs) All right? That there is so much priestly information in Luke and Acts, all the commentators kept saying, wow, this Gentile really did his homework. He really learned a lot about that uh, priesthood in, in Luke and Acts. Well, maybe he isn't a Gentile. Why do, we, why do we think he's a Gentile? And so it's caused a lot of re, uh, research on the person of Luke, the beloved physician, and, uh, and so forth. And so uh, once you get that off the table, then it's no longer a barrier. And once you see all the priestly references in Luke and Acts, there's really nothing that keeps him from being the author of, uh, of Hebrews. So uh, I read a commentary, and that's why I used up most of my time, and that's why I ran out of time. So let's move on. We don't know who the recipients are. Right, We have an unstated author, we have unknown recipients. The phrase to the Hebrews, pros hebraeus, most likely was not on the earliest manuscripts. And yet, they tell you that, but I can't find a manuscript that doesn't have it. The earliest manuscripts that we know about including uh, Papyrus 46 uh, contain the prescript pros hebraeus. It says to the Hebrews. And so it's thought not to be original but an early edition. Um, it would be natural, though, if you join me, Acts chapter six and verse seven, Luke makes a very puzzling statement and then doesn't explain it and never re- comes back to it. In Acts chapter six, we're familiar with verses one through six. Remember, this is how the first deacons got called. Remember, there was a, a dispute in the church. Acts six one. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. And so this is my doctrine of church growth. Uh, keep people from coming into your church. Uh, keep the numbers from increasing. And you can keep the complaints from rising. <laughs> and that might actually be bad theology. It could be a, a problem interpretation. But nevertheless, more people means more problems. And they're going to solve these problems. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now, they're all Jews. The difference is there's some of them that are Hellenistic. That is, they live in Greek areas outside of of Jerusalem. Their culture is largely a Greek culture rather than Hebrew culture. They're still racially Jewish, but their culture is Hellenistic rather than native. And so uh, certain widows are getting overlooked, and they felt it was the prejudice against the Hellenistic Jews. So the Twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and I love this. This is our pattern. This is how we operate at Austin Bible Church. Leadership responds when there's an issue. And they don't tell the people, shut up and quit grumbling. Okay? They acknowledge, yes, this is an issue and it must be dealt with. They go on to say, though, we're not the right ones to handle it. That would be a problem. So the Twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables if if they spend their time solving these kind of problems, they're never going to study and teach the Word of God. You want your pastor uh, studying and, and preaching? You want, you want uh, your pastor studying and, and, and everything the pastor's supposed to be doing? Or, uh, you know, that that time really gets diminished if he's cutting the grass and dumping the trash and paying the electric bill and doing all the other things that the deacons are designed to do. So, Anyway, this is the selection of seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, whom we put in charge of this task. And, and anyway, so we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So there's, there's devotion to prayer in the Word, and then there's table service, which is what the meaning of a deacon is, a table waiter. And uh, notice, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. That's our, uh, that's our biblical authority for church voting. That uh, the the nomination, the proposal has been made and the congregation gets a voice. They have a vote to give approval or not to voice their convictions as to the will of God. And I love the fact that the members weren't shaking their fist, you know, complaining about the problem and telling them what to do about it. They were notifying the, the leadership of the problem and leadership is who came up with a solution. And the members accepted the leadership proposal. So as all this takes place then, you get these men that are selected, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And that's significant because Antioch was the leading Gentile church very early on, founded by believers from Cyrene. And um, so they brought them before the apostles. After praying, they, the apostles, laid their hands on them. It was still, the members maybe made nominations, but the apostles still made the appointments. It's always top down delegated authority. And uh, maybe there were some additional names that aren't mentioned in Scripture, and the apostles vetoed them and said, nah, no. <laughs> all right. But these guys, all right. And they sanctioned these seven. All right. Then we have this mysterious verse here in verse 7. It's kind of tucked in between 1 through 6. It's tucked in between 8 and following. It just kind of sits there by itself as a lonely little verse. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And notice, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Wow. Well, how many is that? a great many. How many priests were there in Jerusalem? How many priests and Levites served in the temple in Jerusalem? Any guesses? Thousands. All right. Tens of thousands. Yeah. So for a great many of them to cross into the church age and become a part of the body of Christ, how many would that be? Would five or ten be noticeable? Would a hundred be noticeable? I think we start to approach several hundred in order for a great number a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith wow all right so now i want to hear more tell me more clearly they're going to be involved in later episodes clearly they're going to be involved uh, in later chapters when there's conflict in the temple these guys are going to stand up and side with paul and whoever no i don't know they disappear they absolutely disappear they're not referenced again they're driven out of jerusalem They are not featured again in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament except, I believe, as the recipients of the book of Hebrews. That it is the most natural um, theory behind who might be the recipients for the book of Hebrews. That they are converted priests that are now operating in the church age that have no guidance for what they should be doing or how they should be operating in the midst of this Gentile church. Either in Antioch most likely or Cyrene or some other some other dominant Gentile church with a significant priestly presence. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the mystery there. Dominant themes. There are several. And it's interesting, you read a commentary and they want to camp on the one that they think is the dominant theme, but um, I'm going I'm to pick a few. And in fact, I lost my notes. Where did I put my notes? Uh, I pick uh, a few dominant themes. Really five of them. We'll have some fun with these, okay? Because I just thought of a sixth one. <laughs> um here's a dominant theme: better. Better, greater, more. Okay? Better, greater, more. Almost every chapter is going to talk about better, greater, more. And as such, this should be a book that we Americans can can resonate with. Right? America is always about better, greater, more, okay? And, uh, you know, if something's being done well, well, it could be done better, all right? Or something, there could be more, whatever else. And so better, greater, more. Starting with chapter one, better than angels, right? More glory than Moses in Hebrews 3.3. 3. We are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. We saw last hour, but it comes from Hebrews 6.9. How about a better hope? There's a better hope that's spoken of in in, uh, Hebrews 7.19. And so in all of these expressions of better, greater, more, what we're finding is there's a contrast between how things used to be in the Old Testament. How things used to be before the risen Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. How things were when Um, on a limited basis, we had shadows and types that were explaining the better things to come. And so all these expressions of better, greater, uh, more is a contrast between Israel in the Old Testament, the church now in the New Testament, but beyond that, is actually going to be key for tribulational martyrs in surviving hell on earth. Because better, greater, more is what's going to sustain them as they operate in this Hebrews reality expecting the second advent of Jesus Christ and getting ready to see the Mosaic law done away and getting ready to see the new covenant take effect in the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so much of what we adapt, much of what we are blessed by in the book of Hebrews, we want once we're finished with Hebrews we want to go back a second time and say how would a tribulational believer apply this? in prep, in surviving the Armageddon and in uh, entering into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because that's another uh, application that Hebrews has. We'll have to talk about that as well. A better covenant in 7.22 and 8.6. A better covenant. There's no question the new covenant is better than the Mosaic covenant. Why is that? And this is where church application starts to get confused. This is where church application starts to get muddy because they want to get sloppy with the application in chapters 7 and 8 with things that are really awaiting Armageddon. They're awaiting Jesus Christ in the second advent. They're really waiting for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But preachers are so quick to try to take this better covenant, better things concerning you and they want to preach it to their people and they want to put the body of Christ, under the new covenant. And I believe that's a problem. I believe that's a huge problem. That's like the bride of Christ receiving an invitation to her own wedding. Doesn't happen, okay? We're issuing the invitations. When it said, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, don't be looking for an invitation. You're not receiving an invitation. You're bride of Christ. You and I are issuing those invitations, okay? Don't get confused with the church age and the kingdom to come. And I think we're going to be careful with that as well as we work our way through Hebrews. Better covenant, better promises. Also Hebrews 8.6. Better sacrifices in Hebrews 9.23. You want to do a day of atonement over and over and over again every year? Or are you happy with the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? Okay, amen. Once and for all, Jesus Christ entered that holy place. A better possession Hebrews 10.34. See, if you've had your property confiscated as the priest did that had to leave Jerusalem, if you had your property confiscated, if if naming the name of Christ cost you something, well, what do you have waiting for you? Isn't it better? Okay, A better sacrifice than Cain in chapter 11, a better country in chapter 11, a better resurrection in chapter 11. There's something better promised for us and the blood of Christ is greater than the blood of Abel in uh, Hebrews twelve twenty four. So there's a dominant theme from chapter 1 to chapter 12, better, greater, more. And it comes up again and again and again. And this is the tragedy of it all. If you are on the verge of throwing that all away, if you're on the verge of going back to the way things used to be as perhaps these priests were thinking about returning back to Jerusalem, these priests were thinking about maybe going back to an Old Testament way of thinking and, uh, or they have a patriotic zeal to get back to Jerusalem and help defend the holy place against the Roman legions. All right, I believe it was written in 67 A.D. before the fall of Jerusalem. And you better believe there's going to be a patriotic fervor on the part of priests and Levites to go defend the holy place against, against the pagan Romans, right? Anyway, there's a danger of them falling away and we'll talk about that another theme huge theme about sabbath rest and it comes early it comes mainly in chapters 3 and 4 but it it's stressed over and over and over again the sabbath rest in chapter 3 it's verse 11 and verse 18 and chapter 4 is verse 1 3 5 10 and 11 twice in verse 3 these these references to sabbath and you know it's it's powerful because of all the 10 commandments only nine of them are repeated in the new testament only nine of them are binding upon the church the one that the church is not bound by is the, keeping the Sabbath day. You know, we do we, we not get to murder just because we're in the church. <laughs> we don't get to commit adultery because we're in the church. You know, we don't get to steal, right? Because we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, guess what? The Ten Commandments under law, nine of those Ten Commandments are repeated in the church. And they're, they're fully acceptable. or binding for church age application. The one that's not stated is Sabbath, and, that, and there's a reason why. We don't observe the seventh-day Sabbath as Israel did. We observe today. Day after day as long as it is called today we have our Sabbath rest. So let's look at it. Hebrews 3, and this is, uh, again, we're just introducing the book and we'll have much more to say when we get to chapter 3. But just let me show you some things. to tease you with it and then you can share it with some others. Get them excited, bring them into church because we want more people, more problems. <laughs> All right. But remember, um, Hebrews 3, just as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, today, if you hear His voice, the emphasis is on daily. And then we have quotes from Psalms, Psalm 95 all through here. And then it ends in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The great danger, the warning is not losing salvation. The warning is not attaining to the mental attitude of rest that God has designed us for in the church age. All right, so there's a danger as as an anger application. Verse 18, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Notice every one of these guys left Egypt. Every one of these guys walked through the Red Sea. Every one of these guys was a redeemed person. But they did not walk by faith and God was angry with them. You know, God's angry with believers far more than he's ever angry at unbelievers. There's no expectation of an unbeliever. Why would, he, why would he have a wrath against the unbeliever? They're operating according to their nature. But you and I that are defying scripture, you and I that worship other gods besides the Lord our God, we become objects of wrath, do we not? And if we fail to enter because of unbelief, that's on us. And is failing to enter his rest that is the rest of God the Father. God the Father himself rested and set that as a pattern for us. We should be resting. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. See, I don't, I don't fear Romans 3.23 anymore. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're past that. That's not a falling short that concerns me or you or anyone else that's born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's a falling short that all of us need to be concerned about. Every one of us. It says, Let us fear. Any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. And, he, and the author includes himself in this. The pastor should include himself in this if he's preaching it right. Every believer, who, who among us cannot fall? Take heed lest we fall, right? If we think we stand. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Anyway, there's a lot of doctrine that goes into that, and we're going to teach that. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. You ever uh, try to quote a Bible verse and you can't remember where that Bible verse came from, right? You say, well, you said somewhere, um, you know. I feel pretty good because, you know, the author of Hebrews is the same way, you know. and And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is pretty cool. He said somewhere. Concerning the seventh day, it's Genesis chapter 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And so what is it that hinders believers from entering into the rest that God has designed us for? Unbelief. Failing to walk by faith. If you want to go back to walking by sight again, you're, you're missing out on the rest that God has provided. Mental attitude rest, the stability that we have, inner peace that we have in that mental attitude of rest before God the Father. then verse 10 and verse 11 for the one so verse 9 says there does remain a sabbath rest for the people of God but guess what it's not that seventh day it's not the Jewish sabbath it's our sabbath and it's day after day as long as it's called today and the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works even as in the same way as God also did from his so let us be diligent to enter that rest all right notice that's the warning Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. And you can check the footnotes, you can check the Greek, you can check whatever you want. There's no exceptions in that verse. It doesn't say, oh, except for you, pastor, you're you're not vulnerable. No, it's everybody. No one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We, We, I mean, we're saved by grace through faith, but we remain sinners, volitional creatures. And we can do anything in carnality that an unbeliever can do in uh, their unbelief. So better, greater, more Sabbath rest. The third dominant theme, priesthoods and sacrifices. Can't read this for you because it's basically all of chapters four through 10, (laughs) as well as a significant portion of chapter 13, whereby the priesthood gets very practical for you and for me, the sacrifices that we offer in our priesthood day by day. Priesthoods and Sacrifices. This theme is so overwhelming it provides the rationale for the book's title. It's the reason why the the, the pros Hebraeus was attached to the beginning of the manuscript, to the Hebrews. And the undoubted priestly background for the author, the undoubted priestly background for the recipients. Anyone who chooses to, and there are some, they've even attempted to propose a Gentile audience saying that The reason why it was so overwhelming is because they were completely oblivious to any of that. And the author felt it was necessary to over-explain things. And it's it's a weak argument because that's not what the author of Hebrews does. He's not over-explaining things, but he is illustrating richly through something that he presumes they already know. They already know. So, priesthoods and sacrifices... There are also repeated warnings, and that's why we're going to have fun with this and why we're not afraid of the book. A lot of people are terrified of Hebrews, both Calvinists and Arminians, (laughs) and they use it to defend their views. There are repeated warnings, including five primary warning passages, and if you want to know, there they are. first one comes in chapter 2, chapter 3, crossing into chapter 4, chapter 5, the first part of chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. Five warning passages, and they are harsh. You cannot sugarcoat any of those warning passages. And uh, because they're so harsh, um, it scares a lot of people. And in some cases, it seems like, wow, you mean I can lose my salvation and go to hell? (coughs) Okay, That's how harsh the language is. Well, we know you can't lose your salvation and go to hell, so what's it really saying? How do we handle the text properly? And like I say, we're going to handle it properly, not Calvinistically or uh, as Arminians because they each will grab onto this book and teach it their way. So, five warning passages as we've already seen, falling, failing to enter into rest. Failing because of unbelief. That's what it comes down to. Nobody in the wilderness went back to Egypt. Nobody lost their redemption status as a redeemed people. But they did die in the wilderness. And I don't want this flock to die in the wilderness. I want every believer to enter into that rest that the Father has designed us for. Here's my fifth theme. And this uh, encompasses faith. I didn't use the word faith, but this encompasses the fifth theme. And I think it's bigger than faith. I think it's bigger than chapter 11 and 12. It's, It's applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's applying the Old Testament. It really is a practical book to take all of the Old Testament and say, all right, now in light of the finished work of Christ, what do I do? Applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in light of the present work of Jesus Christ in heaven, and in light of the future work of Jesus Christ when He comes again. Understand all three. So I think if you limit it only to the first one, you have a flawed conclusion. Applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I get that. I'm thankful. You all did that today. Nobody brought a goat this morning. We're not going to butcher an animal. Which is great. You are applying the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. Okay? But it's bigger than that. Because there's the finished work, but now there's the ongoing work that he is doing even now. The present work of Jesus Christ in heaven. This is known as the session of Jesus Christ. He is seated at the Father's right hand, right? When we say a court is in session, that means a judge has been seated. Or Congress is in session. The, The elected representatives have been seated. Jesus Christ is in session He has died. We talk about the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to teach the session. What does he do now? He is actively serving now as the head of the church, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's not only the past completed work we have to dwell on, we have to also dwell on the present ongoing priestly function of Jesus Christ. If we don't grab that, we're diminished in our understanding of the book of Hebrews. And then the anticipated future work. What's he going to do when he lands on the Mount of Olives? What's he going to do when he conquers? What's he going to do when he builds a new temple? What's he going to do? What change of priestly function is going to happen when there's, again, more animals to sacrifice in the millennium? And why is that? Because we have to view Hebrews in the light of the future yet-to-be-finished work of Jesus Christ when he comes again. And that's where Almost nobody wants to take it there. And I think that lends them to more confusion. Again, they try to put us into the new covenant. They try to put the church in the already not yet kind of silly thing. They try to put uh, they, they they really get wrapped up about things yet to come because they're not even dwelling on the things yet to come. I'll talk about that as we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10. I think it's powerful. And mostly because it's not us. It's, it's it's designed to, to encourage the tribulational saints that are surviving Antichrist and are getting ready for the coming kingdom as, uh, as it's going to come in 2nd Advent. Anyway, we'll discuss that as well. So um, we're going to need one more week of introduction because the main Old Testament sources are... Somebody the other day was saying, oh, pastor, saying, I'm not complaining, I'm not complaining, but I'm kind of glad that Isaiah and Jeremiah are done. It's going to be good to finally now be back into the New Testament. And I I just kind of smiled. I didn't say anything. But inside, you know, if they could read my mind, I'd be like, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Do you know how much Old Testament is the book of Hebrews? Do you know that the bulk of Hebrews is Old Testament quotation, including repeated, repeated, repeated use of the Psalms, including the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, including guess what? His favorite prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah. Again and again and again and again. We'll talk about. It. We're not going to read all those. We're going to we'll we'll, we'll survey. We'll, uh, we'll spotlight them. We'll show you. I'll show you some of the utilities you can use in Logos Bible software that'll really streamline a lot of these things. They're marvelous tools, though. But you know what? Today thou hast begotten me. I mean, what is that about? Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's a big deal. And one little verse that shows up in Psalm 2, or one little verse that shows up in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, it only shows up once in the Psalms. But Hebrews quotes it five times. Gets a lot of mileage out of that. Okay, Same thing with sit on my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David wrote it once. The author of Hebrews cites it over and over and over again. Why is that? And many of these uh, get repeated. So we'll talk about that. But ultimately, the main exhortations are to faith and endurance. The main exhortations are to faith and endurance. And so I'll be preaching to myself, I'll be preaching to you, the Lord will be preaching to all of us. It's about faith and endurance. And if we fall short, we have no excuse. We have far more than any dispensations ever been given. And so um, the exhortations are to faith and endurance. And by the time we finish with the book of Hebrews, there is no excuse for this congregation to not enter into that rest that the Father has designed us for. Father, I thank you for this book study, and I'm eager to see what you do with it and how it transforms us in all these things. Father, we call upon your faithfulness, thanking you for these blessings. And I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, particularly as we contrast the angelic realm with the human realm and we see the big picture of why it is that it was not the angel of the Lord who came and went to the cross, it was the Son of Man, born of a virgin in humility, in uh, I just, it's, it's fun, Father, to see these things. And I thank you that not only are you giving us the book of Hebrews, but you're giving us Hebrews at the same time that you're giving us Philippians in our other services, Father. And we get to have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus who emptied himself, laid aside his privileges and came and uh, died on that cross that we might have eternal life. Thank you for the priestly function we have in the church age. The church is like nothing this world has ever seen. Jesus promised upon this rock I will build my church. And that church, Father, is us and it's, it's, a, it's a glorious thing, Father. We're, we're delighted to study it, we're delighted to make the application and especially even to sing about it as we've been singing all month long. It's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. Well, if you would, let's take our blue hymnals again. And we can't sing.